Gabby. And I'm Kim, and we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking. It's been a lot of debunking lately, I feel like. We've been debunking a lot. <laughs> we should be called debunking donuts. Hey. But um But um bump. Uh, I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to a couple of our listeners. Ooh. I had some guests on my tour on Saturday. Fun. Benny and Erica, super fun. Uh, they came on the tour. They were delightful. They gifted me this beautiful candle that smells awesome. Can you nice. see this through our Zoom? Yeah. Doc Amber. <laughs> Doc Amber. Uh, they're company it's salt and coconut who and uh i was looking at some of the other candles they have because you know i'm like yeah we love candles. candles we love candles um but no it was really really fun it's always fun when you know i don't know i've had a handful of listeners come on the tour and it's uh it's a good time uh so thank you benny and erica you were a lot of fun thank you for listening thank you for my candle yes yeah. i'm jolly i want a candle <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I loved uh, hearing about the allegedly. And yes, evidence. yes. I, I slipped those in because I don't think I usually say allegedly. And I think I found the time to say it twice on Perfect. the tour. Perfect. Love that. Which I think confused some of the non-listeners, but maybe intrigued them. You maybe know, that's my favorite them. thing ever is just to make people be like, wait, what? <laughs> why is this happening i don't i don't understand somebody looped me in and we're like you're on the outside of the inside joke sir sorry yes, i'm so sorry i'm so sorry sorry not sorry you could be on the inside just listen to our podcast hello that's true although i didn't actually specify that for any of the people <laughs> who just made them wonder <laughs> it's, you know it's the tease it's a, we love a tease we, we love, love a little tease, tease. Yeah. A little teasy tease love that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, thanks for uh, bringing, bringing some friends to the, the tour. How nice. Love that. <laughs> uh, we have a debunking-ish topic today. Um, we are going to delve into the lore and legend arena uh, today, mm. especially since it's spooky season, a.k.a. it's year-round spooky season for us. We're just yeah, saying this just, for the people. That's just that, a day of the week that ends in why. So for those of our listeners that are new to us, because it's spooky season, welcome, but know that this happens year-round. Uh, we're going to be talking about the origin story of the vampire and where Ooh. it came from. Um, because, you know, I know you and I talked about this, Kim. I sure. love a vampire story. I don't know do. what it is. I mean, I do know what it is. We'll talk about it in a bit. But truly, we already covered Mercy Brown. Mm-hmm. We already covered uh, the Casket Girls way back when uh, and the Ursuline Convent. Um, you did our friend Vlad. Hashtag everyone's name Vlad. Vlad the Impaler. Everyone's name Vlad. Yep. And we even did the um, Highgate Vampire, which was a real fun story. Um, so I was struggling. I was like, what do we talk about? I want to do a vampire topic, but what do we do? I need something that's like juicy enough, you know, that we can do something that covers a whole episode. And then I was mm-hmm. like, well, let me just do like the juiciest and try to <laughs> make it into one episode. Cool. Yeah, that's that actually go? like way harder. So 
this is me saying I'm not going to talk about everything, guys, <laughs> because we would be here forever. I'm also not going to get deep into like pop culture vampires or like literature, which I know is like one of the first things people want to talk about. Sure, I sure. was more curious about, you know, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And like, what did people believe and mm-hmm. what did they think was real versus not and why? Because for me, that's just like really intriguing and I'm just curious. So here you go is my curiosity of um, deep dive historical research with lots of conflicting resources as we love. Of course. It wouldn't be a ghoulish tendencies episode if we didn't have conflicting resources, I feel like. Naturally. So... You know, grab your glass of faux blood or real blood or, you know, liquid death as I have in front of me or your wine, if that's what you would like to call your blood. I don't know what you like. You do you. But uh, gather round because we are talking about vampires today. Vampires. Vampires. So Mm -hmm. I read two books. Guys, I don't usually (laughs) read this many books. Gabby read everyone. She read. (sighs) I she can read (laughs) i read a lot i have an english degree uh but truly um for the sake of topics we don't have a ton of time to do research and so for me to read two for the one topic it's a big deal guys i'm I'm usually the one that goes down the book rabbit hole yeah i do it occasionally (laughs) but i don't generally do two like so this is a big deal i just nerded out super hard and got made fun of by my husband because of how hard i nerded out on vampires so Really quickly, before I get into it, I wanted to talk about the two books that I'm going to use as references. I used a ton of references. We'll post it in our show notes. Um, But the first book that I really loved, Kim, I think you have this book, too. It's The Vampire, Mm. A New Mm -hmm. History Mm -hmm. um, by Nick Groom. And I also have a National Geographic vampire book, which I think is so fun. Um, it's called Vampire Forensics, Uncovering the Origins of an Enduring Legend by Mark Collins. Mm-hmm. This one's a little bit more like entertainment with some information thrown in. So like mm-hmm. I, I'm going to reference the other one a little bit more heavily. So just throwing that out there. Here's your intro to creepy critics corner before we get there um but that's what i've been reading for creepy critics corner the last like month um anywho folklore legend all of that it dates back for vampires centuries Mm -hmm. and it is still a hypnotic bite of lore today the fictional vampire grew out of actual incidents with death and the unknown Mm. what incidents you may ask (laughs) don't don't you worry your little heart we will get there um the initial vampire-like creatures were actually just human corpses or the undead that rose from the grave would come for humans and in some stories there's this like super fine line between vampire-like creatures spirits demons werewolves Oh my, you know, like all kinds of options of things that can be intertwined. And it's a, depending on the culture you hear it from, it could be something similar or different. Um, Balkan countries use the word that is translated as wolf fairy, which is interesting. Also, I'd like, I like to picture what that looks like. Like, is it a really hairy fairy or is it a wolf (laughs) with with wings or something? Like what? Anywho, that's a (laughs) sidebar. Um. 
But depending on what source you find, as I mentioned, (laughs) there's a variety of references of the first stories of vampires. I literally read so many. We're going to talk about it. Some scholars claim that it came from the Greeks. The Bacchae. Yeah. Uh, Others claim that it has a Hungarian origin. uh, And as we know, the really, like, peak of vampirism was in the 1700s, which we'll get to in a bit. Sure. But today, some people, especially on uh, what we like to call social media, like TikTok. Oh, yes. TikTok. Ah, TikTok. I refuse to get it. Fun fact. No, it's Uh, your your wise. (laughs) (laughs) Some people on there say that the birth of the legend of the vampire stems from the Greek myth of Ambrosio, the first human to become a vampire. Kim, are you familiar with the story of Ambrosio? Oh, vaguely. Vaguely. Uh, no worries. We're going to get into it. Yeah. It, it goes back to like, you know, when I was taking a lot of the classics. So it's, eh. <laughs> well, it's there, funny. but there's a lot of digging. <laughs> We're going to dig. And this story, I'm going to lead it, lead into it as story because it's associated with classics, but is it one? So the story goes that Ambrosio, it's at 450 BCE. He traveled to the Oracle of Delphi. He was an Italian adventurer in Greece. He met Selene in the god Apollo's temple. Mm -hmm. They fell in love, decided to get married and go to Italy in the morning, the last day of Ambrosia's day in Greece. Um, Apparently, the Apollo, like the god guy, also Mm -hmm. had a thing for Selene. Now, according to some stories, he was her dad. That's weird. But yeah, you that's, know, uh, that, that tracks. <laughs> yeah. And um, so Apollo's pissed that Ambrosio was going to steal Selene away and then was extra pissed that they met in his temple, which I think is kind of funny. Um, so Apollo, as a Greek god does, curses Ambrosio to have mm-hmm. such sensitive skin that it would be burned by the sunlight and that he could not meet Celine the day after because he'd have to go into the sun if he wanted to meet her during the day. That's a bummer. And apparently he also allegedly would have the eternal thirst for blood. I don't know how that's related, but sure. Sure. Ambrosio uh, at the time goes world's biggest whoops, realizing he did this and uh, sought refuge with Hades. The place and the, the, the dude. So <laughs> Hades then offers him and Celine protection. But, because, you know, they always have to have an ultimatum, in yeah. exchange for Artemis's silver bow, which now Hades is saying Ambrosio needs to go steal it. So sure. Ambrosio was to be given a magical bow in which he was to hunt animals and offer them to Artemis to gain her favor. Sure. And as collateral, so that he wouldn't just be like, peace out, bye, uh, he had to leave his soul with Hades. So he agrees, goes on his way, and apparently, like, he's trying to get into contact with Celine. I'm like, you don't have cell phones at this time, right? So no. by, by any other means, for whatever reason, he shoots a swan, writes her a letter with its blood, oh, yeah, and then offers a dead swan to Artemis. He like did this do. as one does. So he does this for 44 days. <laughs> 44 swans are dead. But he missed the 45th shot, which made it impossible to write the last message to Celine. 
Apparently, mm. Artemis takes pity with him, lends him her silver bow to shoot the last one, because apparently uh, Ambrosio was out of arrows. Sure. Artemis is kind and offering hers. So Ambrosio, of course, takes advantage of the situation, takes the bow, runs to Hades. But now Artemis is pissed because her bow was just stolen and adds another curse right to ambrosio that made silver burn his skin Mm. he then asked artemis for forgiveness and told her about the whole ordeal so she feels bad again and then blesses him with immortality fangs and the capability to be almost as good of and quick of a hunter as she was Mm. sure Um, Again, he was able to write his love letters and animal blood. So romantic. Um, In exchange for his immortality, he and Selene had to promise that they would only worship Artemis moving forward forever, which apparently included no touching, no kissing and no offspring. So no fun. Um, But geez, these uh, godly ultimatums are like ridiculous. So he then wrote Selene another one of his creepy blood notes sets up a date at the docks where she would find a wooden coffin, which she was supposed to bring on board uh, and to open the coffin at sundown so that he could come hide from the sun. Hmm. He explained the situation. They settled down in a cave in Ephesus and spent their time worship, worshiping Artemis, not having sex. And then eventually Celine gets old. She gets sick. And since Ambrosio was immortal, and his soul was still in Hades, they weren't going to be able to be together in the afterlife if she died. Mm. So Artemis took pity with them again, one last time, and allowed Ambrosio to touch Selene this one single time, only to bite her neck and drink her blood, which killed her, made her immortal. And this was the first ever vampire couple and the earliest depiction of vampire reproduction. So now that I just told you the story, does it sound familiar? Yeah, there's some stuff that's ringing a bell. I think I I think a lot of what I usually hear about, and some of this is you know, just having to learn about the Bible, uh, is uh, Lilith, uh, and and the whole thing with how she's often depicted drinking like baby's blood. And- yes, but Lilith isn't in this. No, that's what I mean, though. When I'm yeah, thinking yeah. of the first vampire story, I think you that's think the Lilith. one that's, yeah, that's usually who comes to my mind. Um, Thank you, Kim. You know why I'm thanking you right now? Why? Fun fact. The story mm-hmm. is fake. The story is full-blown, not a real story. This Ambrosio? Yes. Ah. It is a fake myth about the first human to become a vampire. <laughs> And it was recently developed and made its rounds on social media, specifically on TikTok, which like we talk a lot about how legend and lore perpetuated way back when, before there was Internet, when it was just like word of mouth or like maybe written down, but like not like verifiable sources. Right. Like Mm -hmm. and how things can perpetuate. But isn't it kind of nuts that this story got a lot of traction on TikTok? And literally, my friend Rose Sinister, who we had on our podcast like mm-hmm. way back when, told me about this and was like, oh, you should cover this because a lot of people think it's real. And mm. so it's just nuts because it gives me an opportunity to open an episode by scullying, which is yeah. like my dedication to you right now. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, this story is fake. Uh, if you Google it, you'll find a godsandmonsters.com article, which is not a reliable source, fun fact. Uh, oh. And there's no other authentic resource. I was going to say, where did the origin, like, where did it originate? You then? can't find it, is my huh. point. And there's no documentation that verifies that it's any part of authentic scriptures. And hmm. so here's here's the reasoning, too, because this is where we get into it. So... Apparently, the guy who wrote this claims mm -hmm. that he got it from the scriptures of Delphi, which are not recognized <laughs> by any official organization anywhere. Sure. Um, and <laughs> he says that the stories deserve to be told regardless of the validity of the scriptures. Okay. Um, based yeah. on the mythology of Selene, it's actually not accurate. <laughs> so sure. um, this is also why there's conflicting information. But what's really wild is like it talks about apollo being able to control the sun with mm -hmm. his like exposure to sun and skin mm -hmm. apollo was not the sun god right it it was helios was the sun god mm -hmm. and and uh apollo was the god of light so mm -hmm. he wouldn't be able to curse ambrosio in this way if that was the case but it gets better <laughs> he's italian right yeah italy didn't exist in 450 bce it wasn't a thing yet He's as a Italian? concept. Yeah. In the oh. story. In the oh, story. Okay. In this particular story, it is. So the other thing, too, is that a lot of the tropes that are described in the story to depict Ambrosio mm -hmm. as a vampire weren't even vampire tropes until the 20th century. Sure. Yeah. So how is that the first vampire story written in 450 BCE or whenever that happened, if that didn't happen until 20th century. So, for example, vampires weren't destroyed by the sun until Nosferatu was a thing in 1922. Fun fact. Um, it was reinforced by the 1958 film War of Dracula starring Christopher mm -hmm. Lee. That also reinforced vampires having fangs, which actually they didn't for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and with the exception of Varney the Vampire in 1850s, like he was one of the exceptions to the rule of having vampire fangs. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But fangs and vampires are actually a much more modern appearance than you would think. And so like the, all these details about this story like, are actually just like fun to talk about and not like real. Uh, so... It's funny, Rose was like really worked up about it. So <laughs> um, I'll, I'll let her have that. But it's a bad piece of fake folklore where somebody just didn't do their homework. Um, there's no scholars of antiquity that think that this story is real. So shout out to Rose for telling me about this one. Mm. But it's a great intro to like, where did vampires come from? Like, do we even know? And how can we verify that these stories are authentic? Mm -hmm. So true here's the answer you can't really like yeah. certain yeah. times you can certain times you can't i think the what the reasons why we could with this one is because of the telltale signs of being a vampire were not that until later right sure yeah so you know ancient greece was definitely prolific and had an influence and definitely had some monsters who fit the vampire description i'm gonna mispronounce so many words on this episode i'm just gonna say that now <laughs> we have the m pusai I think, didn't you say that earlier? The seductive shapeshifters? I said the Bacchae. Oh, the Bacchae, sorry. Yeah. They both ended in I. I thought it was the same one. The <laughs> La Lamia, uh, which is a child-eating monster. The Stryges, Stryges, uh, a nocturnal mm. bird created yep. from cursed cannibals. Mm -hmm. I love how creative they were. It's so fun. <laughs> um, 
And then you have Eastern Europe, which is just like the best. So vampires came into being when Enlightenment rationality encountered East European folklore, an encounter that attempted to make sense of them through empirical reasoning and that by treating them as credible gave vampires reality, end quote. Mm -hmm. That's from that book I was telling you about. So there were legends about this magic rejuvenation by blood, a la Elizabeth Bathory, which we also covered, fun fact. I just didn't include that in the vampire list because I don't really consider her a vampire. Just going to no. say that. She gets thrown in there, but it doesn't really. Yeah. Meh. It's just because yeah. of the blood part. The blood. And, yeah. And she wasn't drinking it. She bathed in it if that actually sure. happened. Um, but. In 1815, fun fact, the Brothers Grimm recorded the continued folk belief that leprosy and blindness could be cured by bathing in blood of a virgin. So, <laughs> sure, that's fun. Uh, but that's, you know, linear to Elizabeth Bathory, came from the same region. Now, my favorite lore about vampires comes from uh, Slavic lore. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are you ready? This is fun. Okay, so apparently vampires can enter a home through any gap. It doesn't specify the size of the gap. Mm-hmm. So all I think of is like the X-Files episode where an alien slides through like an <laughs> air conditioning <laughs> vent. And like that's how vampires get in. Um, they also said that sand or poppy seeds can act as impediments if scattered in a coffin or strewn on the path of the grave. The vampire is required to count each and every grain of sand or seed before proceeding. <laughs> Which is definitely mentioned in an episode of What We Do in the Shadows and very Mm -hmm. funny. So Mm -hmm. that comes from Slavic lore. Also, um, any offspring conceived with a vampire, because that's possible, uh, would have no bones. (laughs) So that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's a bummer. Um, This is my favorite one. This is great. Perfect for October. Slavic gypsy belief in vampiric agricultural tools and vampire vegetables. Apparently, uh, pumpkins and watermelons took 10 days to animate into shuddering, murmuring vampires. And if you kept a pumpkin after Christmas, it would become a vampire. I mean, that's a reason to keep a whole bunch of pumpkins. That just sounds cool. I mean, if they're carved, they're probably just going to like fall into themselves and rot and get juicy and just make a mess. But I guess that that's kind of animated. Could be considered shuddering and murmuring. Sure. Uh, This is a fun quote. Fortunately, the potential for injury from an undead squash is not that great. And so we learn that, quote, people are not very afraid of this kind of vampire, end quote. (laughs) So dumb, but I had to talk about it. It's very funny. Uh, So that's a really fun vampire uh, lore moment. Now, of course, we also have our friend Vlad, who we've talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into it now because we've already covered him. If you don't know about Vlad the Impaler, pause, go back, listen to that episode, come back. Uh, This was in the 15th century, and he very much was not a vampire, uh, but did, in fact, impale people uh, and Mm -hmm, was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, So go listen to our Vlad the Impaler episode if you want to hear about that. So in Romania, you know, Dracula aside... In older Romanian tales, Strigoi were nightmarish creatures who were... Strigoi! Strigoi! Uh Uh, They were nightmarish creatures who were divided into two different categories. You had the living ones and the dead ones. So the living Strigoi were witches who sent Mm -hmm. out souls to drink the blood of animals and suck the blood from humans themselves. The dead ones uh, were soulless husks capable of rising from their graves... And they also liked to suck blood and attacked their own family members, which 
doesn't seem like the greatest experience. But anywho, when it comes to the first stories of vampires themselves, different sources say literally way different things. Mm-hmm. Now, according to one source, Jur Grandu Alilovic was allegedly the first historical person to be described as a vampire in records. Um, he lived from 1579 to 1656 in what is now Croatia. Jur Grando was a strigun, which was a vampire and a warlock. Fancy. Now, the legend claims that he died from an illness in 1656 and then rose from the grave every night for many years, just fully terrorizing the people of the town of Kringa. Apparently, uh, if he knocked on the door of a house in the village, someone in that house was going to die. Uh, and mm. that's what he did. And apparently, well there. <laughs> you know, it's a great premise for a horror movie. Mm. Uh, probably has already happened at some point. Um, but there was a priest in the town named uh, Father Giorgio, and he claimed to come face to face with this dude and said that he held a cross out in front of the vampire and yelled, Behold, Jesus Christ, you vampires, stop tormenting us. <laughs> I just, I, I love this. It's so fun. Um, it's like dinner with my grandmother. <laughs> I mean, I would pay to see that. That would be such a good time. Um, now, in 1672... The corpse of Jur was dug up and found to be perfectly preserved, and he had a smile on his face. Aww. This is a happy camper. Uh, now, the group of villagers tried to pierce his chest with a hawthorn stick, but it didn't work. So instead, they sawed his head off, and apparently he screamed through the whole process. I mean, as one does. Uh, and, and that seemed to do the trick, and he was never seen again. So this one was documented, so that's fun. Now, another source says that the first known reference to vampires appeared in written form in Old Russia in A.D. 1047. This was soon after uh, Orthodox Christianity moved into Eastern Europe. At the time, the term for vampire was upir, U-P-I-R, which has uh, uncertain origins, but it's possible that the literal meaning of it was the thing at the feast or sacrifice, Referring to a potentially dangerous spiritual entity that people believed could appear at rituals for the dead. Now, there's a podcast that I listened to a long time ago and revisited recently called History Goes Bump Podcast. And they do some really great research. And that's why I really like them. Um, And they did they covered a topic similar to this and had different resources, which is why I also think this is really fun to cover because you can choose what you want to talk about. Um, But. They said that, quote, surprisingly, the belief in vampire-like creatures was very prominent in Arabia. The earliest references found by archaeologists were on Chaldean and Assyrian tablets. Stories were found in Babylonian writing, and vampires made it into Roman and Grecian works, which we did talk about. Romans started adopting the cremating of bodies to ensure that they wouldn't rise again. That's one way to do it. The Greeks and Romans spread their superstitions to Romania, Hungary, Austria, Poland, and the British Isles, and even Iceland. The first documented vampire hunt took place in 1345 in France, and the Aswang was popular. Uh, It was a vampire-like creature in Asia starting in the 16th century. Chile also had a blood-sucking snake known as a piuchen. Oh, these words. Okay. 
De Gregorum Hodi Quinirum Opinationibus. Wow was sure. published in Greece in 1645 and was considered the first written text on the treatment of vampirism. So lots of different firsts. Honestly, like, I think it's just about who wants to take credit for it at this point. Sure. Um, another source says that European vampire lore likely was brought from India by nomadic gypsies. I know that's not <laughs> the most proper term. Um, and apparently the Indies Valley in Pakistan, which was close to the Indian border, had uh, the earliest civilization from the third millennium BC with evidence of vampire cults. So not just vampires, but vampire cults. Uh, they had vampire gods of nature that sat were satisfied by sacrifices and offerings of blood. They also had legends of demons that drank the blood of the living in the East. So sure. speaking of the East in ancient China, there was a legend of Jiangxi known as the Chinese hopping vampire. That's fun. Uh, tells of a stiff type of zombie-esque creature that uh, was incapable of walking normally, which is why they hopped. So <laughs> I really love just the the visual of a really scary vampire just like on a pogo stick, just like hopping around. Nice. But in the West, the powerful religion was a big thing. You know, this guy, Jesus Christ, um, stated that the blood of a savior would be drank and held as sacred. Uh, that sure. sounds kind of vampire-y, right? Yeah, it was my argument all through uh, religious ed when I was in young Catholic, retired now. But uh, I used to argue that, what it, what was it that I said one day to the priest? Uh, <laughs> that Jesus was at best a vampire and at worst a zombie. You know, that it's funny. It's funny that you say that because there was a period of time, well, I am also not religious in, in the slightest at all, but my um, dad and brother are Christian. And when I was younger and they both lived in California and I lived in California, my brother made us go to the Hollywood Bowl for an Easter like music production. I was like, so we're celebrating zombie Jesus? Mm-hmm. He's a vampire too. He drinks blood, right? And my brother got so mad at me. Um he starts off as a as a vampire, but then like he rises again. That's to me when he gets like full zombie. I think it's a more fun story, but also like, why are people surprised that vampires were thought to be real when that's what you're worshiping? Like, <laughs> let's be real, you know. Uh, people reconciled superstition with faith, and the cross would eventually become the universal weapon against the vampire, which seems just like fully ironic, but whatever. But there was an actual, like, medical origin, which I think a lot of people know about, but you might not know the extent of. So we're going to dive into it. So the creation of these stories basically come down to a lack of knowledge about disease and decay, right? Because back then, people didn't know a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was a time, like I mentioned, of religious fervor and superstition. And whenever a village was visited by a really bizarre, weird illness or death, People thought it was the doing of a vampire and began to prepare for a battle with the dead. So this was actually especially true in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. What happened in the Middle Ages, Kim? I mean, the plague? Yes, the Black Death occurred in Europe in the mid-1300s, killed 30 to 60% of Europe's entire population, which is just like, that's a lot Walkers. of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Uh, infection was often thought to be caused by a vampire 
and mass hysteria during this period prompted the rapid spread of vampire myths. So also not surprising when you don't know, it's fun to tell a story, you know? So the disease often left behind a bleeding mouth with like lesions on its victims and the vomiting of blood, which to the uneducated was a sure sign of vampirism. Also, like, I love how I'm saying this in such a, like a peppy way. I'm like, yeah, vomiting blood. Woo. Uh, foreign illnesses were easy to blame um, on something horrifying that would consume the bodies of the recently healthy within the span of like a week or two. It didn't seem normal. People had never seen it before. This seemed superstitious. Mm-hmm. And these were wasting diseases. Mm-hmm. Wasting diseases were the ones where people were like this something is eating this person. There's no way that this is natural. So there's a few. There's a few different ones. One of the main ones that um, you hear about a lot contributing to this is porphyria. Uh, Porphyria is an inherited blood disorder that causes the body to produce less heme, uh, a critical component of hemoglobin, which is the protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen from the lungs to the bodily tissues. Mm. So... It seems likely that this is the main disorder of the original vampire myth. Uh, Mm -hmm. It actually even was coined to be the, quote, vampire disease. Mm. Let's talk about the symptoms of porphyria uh, and see, (laughs) is it porphyria or is it a vampire? I don't know. know. (laughs) Let's see. Let's find out. Uh, Symptom number one, sensitivity to sunlight. Also, this makes me go back to like, no, that didn't come up until the 20th century, but whatever, Mm. we're going to go with it. So extreme sensitivity to sunlight leading to facial disfigurement, blackened skin and hair growth. I don't know. That sounds like a werewolf to me. I'm not going to lie. Whatever. Fangs could also be a werewolf. Also didn't come up until later, but whatever. We're going to keep going with this. Um, In addition to facial disfigurement, repeated attacks of the disease caused the gums to recede. So you would see more teeth. If you could see more teeth, they looked like fangs. So people thought that people had fangs. Um, Blood drinking. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is, this is more on brand. So apparently people with porphyria, would have urine that turned dark red. Um, And so when people saw this, folklore surmised that they had been drinking blood, and that's why they had dark red urine. So uh, apparently also some physicians had recommended that uh, patients drink blood to compensate for their defect in their red blood cells. Hmm. But it was animal blood that they were told to drink, not human blood. I don't know. Tomato, tomato to me. Blood is blood. Okay. Uh, It's more likely that these patients who only went out after dark were judged to be looking for blood and their fangs made people think they were vampires. Uh, I'm not going to lie. If I saw somebody go out after dark and I saw a lot of teeth and they were like, hey, yo, you know where to find the blood? I'd be like, that's probably a vampire. You know, like, I don't blame people for thinking that. They also uh, had an aversion to garlic, apparently with the sulfuric content of garlic could lead to... uh, porphyria attack which was super painful so people avoided garlic um and this one's funny i think this one's really funny the reflections not seen in mirrors so uh, you know in mythology vampires apparently like can't see themselves in a mirror they can't see a reflection uh and when you had porphyria of we mentioned disfigurement like if someone gets disfigured over time it gets worse and worse 
they had destruction of facial tissues, collapse of the facial structure. Wasn't pretty. People probably avoided looking at themselves in mirrors. That's where that came from. Uh, And then there was a fear of the crucifix. And this one I actually think is more legit. So during the Spanish Inquisition, which was from 1478 to 1834, apparently 600 vampires, air quotes on vampires, were reportedly burned at the stake. Um, This is very similar to the witch trials, guys. Uh, Some of these accused vampires were just people who had porphyria. Porphyria patients had good reason to fear the Christian faith and Christian symbols based on what was happening because a bunch of other people like them were getting burned at the stake. So, again, I get it. So I could completely see why that would make people think, hey, that's the vampire. That's just me. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's one. That's the biggest one. So pellagra is another disease. Uh, This one was first recognized in 1735. So this is the 18th century. And because it's the 18th century, this was the first time that people in this area got corn. And it was the result of a deficiency of niacin and tryptophan, which was caused by a diet overly dependent on corn. So can you guess what some of the um, symptoms of this one were if it was similar to vampirism? like sensitivity to sunlight hey good job hypersensitivity to sunlight good job Kim. uh also like people being crazy and violent (laughs) apparently like unpredictable behavior to be fair that's just like people yeah (laughs) that's not like there's saturday night in capitol hill truly so unpredictable behavior due to degeneration of brain neurons causing Mm. insomnia hey i have that uh, irritability. Oh, I have that. Yeah, I'm guilty of that all the time. <gasps> Dementia. Nope, don't have that yet. Yet is the key word. And violence every day in my brain. Yeah. Uh, but this was also a wasting disease and would give you the look of the living dead. So, okay. Disease number two. <laughs> and then the next one. Consumption. Kim, what is hey. consumption? Uh, consumption is... Today, more commonly called tuberculosis. Yes. Uh, Although I think, I don't know why I like consumption better. I think it's because in all of the old, like, books and plays, they have consumption. Um, It sounds cooler. It's like, like, I'm dying of consumption versus, I got tuberculosis. Well, Um, consumption sounds like something's literally eating you, which is why it's a vampire thing. Well, and to be fair, I mean, it's it's a a bacteria that, like, goes after your lungs mm-hmm. and and it makes you kind of like drown in your own blood yeah and you cough up blood yeah so if you're coughing up blood again like in a lot of these blood is prevalent like mm-hmm. anytime you see a lot of blood like people freak out and they're like "Ooh, vampire and mm-hmm. like this one you're absolutely right it settled in the lungs people would get really weak it would get worse at night mm-hmm. um People talked about feeling like they had a weight on their chest, but really that was just probably it filling up with blood. It's filling up with blood, which is real dark. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would lose vitality, strength, right? Like, this all sounds like vampirism, though. Like, it truly mm-hmm. does. Who You know who had consumption that we talked about before? 
uh, oh my goodness, probably more than one person. Oh it was yeah, super because it's hella infectious. It was specifically Mercy Brown that we talked about. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so Mercy Brown and her whole family had it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Also, I'm not going to get into it because we covered it. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear about it. <laughs> um, but that's that's one that usually happened like later on, like 1800s ish. Um, but another one was rabies, which I never realized. Yeah. <laughs> and that one is like really I know this is messed up to joke about, but I think it's really funny. <laughs> Sorry. This is just going to be me this whole episode. Um, so. In 1998, this is not about a vampire 1998. This is about a Spanish neurologist <laughs> named Dr. Juan Gomez Alonso. Great name. Kim's That's favorite a great name. That's an awesome name. Um, he made a correlation between reports of rabies outbreaks in and around the Balkans, which devastated mm. dogs, wolves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. lots of other Hungarian animals from mm-hmm. 1721 to 1728 specifically. <laughs> and he compared them to vampire epidemics. So wolves and bats, if they are rabid, I'm sure we all know what rabies is, but we're going to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, we've all seen, we were all traumatized by old yeller as children. Also, like, my mom threatening me not to get bitten by a squirrel. So, like, there's that, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Every time there was a bat in the house, that was the, that was the fear. Is like there's a bat, bat in the house? Oh, more than once. <laughs> I mean, this is the difference between you growing up in the Pacific Northwest yeah. and me growing up in California. <laughs> I had There's squirrels. A, you had bats. Oh, we had squirrels too. But I, I, I let squirrels into the house once. Uh, I wanted to make friends. Um, no, we'd have, there was a hole in the attic uh, and they were getting into the house, but we didn't know it. So more than once I was awoken because there was a bat in the house. I mean, but that was my honest, mom's fear was rabies, was rabies. Yeah. I mean, I would be like, cool. It's a vampire coming to me at night. I, I was just like, bat. I don't need to get bit because I'll get rabies. Even as a kid, I knew that rabies could be contracted from bats. We had a family friend who was bit by a bat uh, when we were at our cabin. And I remember because they had to go through and get all of the shots. Oh, you had dang. To get, it's like this insanely painful series of shots because rabies is fatal if you don't treat it oh yeah it's really bad like and you have a window to treat it when you've been exposed to it so you bring up a good point because you can't treat it back in the day not the way no, you can no. now this is this is contemporary medicine right, right, right rabies is very treatable if treated in time right and that's a big one <laughs> so once you're showing symptoms it's too late it's too late no you're already a vampire you. you're, you're a vampire at that point you better just go like change your name to vlad and just yell bat and turn into a bat just and have rabies, bat. Turn you know? Into a bat. Yeah, just lean into it. Lean into it. Why not? Hey, man, go big or go home, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so apparently, <laughs> rabid bats <laughs> sure. or wolves have the same snarling, slobbering look that vampires have. So did my um, ex-husband. As would a human... <laughs> Being suffering from rabies. Kim, maybe he had rabies. I'm just going to say that. Wait, I have a question. I have a question, I Kim. like him better. He has rabies. Wait, I have a question, Kim. Did he bite yes. people? Uh, he was in a metal band, so actually he probably did like some kind of, I don't know, Ozzy Osbourne moment. I was going to say Ozzy Osbourne head. bit off the head of a bat. <laughs> this was just a full circle moment. Oh, dear. I wish sometimes I could go back in time. It'd be like young Kim. 
Young Kim, don't go after Ozzy. Um, <laughs> fun fact, 25% of rabid men have a tendency to bite other people. <laughs> fun fact, 25% of rabid men were probably in a, a metal band. <laughs> I just lost my headphones on that one. All right. Um, moving on. Anywho, the virus is carried in the saliva. So if you get bit by a metal dude who has rabies, you're going to get it. Um, infected people have an aversion and hypersensitivity to pungent smells like garlic. There's another vampire moment. Uh, this might also contribute to not wanting to look in the mirror because... I almost said something that was a bad joke. I'm just going to keep going with it. Um, you might not want to look in the mirror because of how wild a rabid person would look, but that's a stretch. Or maybe you just like don't like mirrors. I don't know. Uh, but apparently rabies victims also had sex up to 30 times per night. I'm sorry. What? You said, I don't, okay. Metal dudes, man. I'm just saying. Oh, I'm not going to say what I should be. <laughs> nope. Not going to say it. Um, Wait, are you telling me, though, that rabies is like some kind of Viagra? I mean, you know that there's some dude somewhere. (laughs) Oh, no. That's now thinking to myself, well, it'll kill me, but I can have sex up to 30 times a night. It might not be a nice moment, though. You know what I mean? It might just be like a sex addict painful moment. I don't know. But allegedly they were like hypervigilant in that arena which also like if you look at more recent vampire lore there's a lot of sexualization of vampires in the more recent lore so like i i mean i'm just saying (laughs) interpretation penetration and rabies that's gonna be our next book uh (laughs) no but like vampire i mean vampires are all about the sex they're they're literally well penetrating you well that's sure sure sure. but i mean this but the whole idea of like i'm sinking my teeth i'm penetrating you with my teeth and again more contemporary when we're looking at like bram stoker and whatnot but this idea of who are they mostly penetrating (laughs) these virginal young women or these lovely young women in their necks and their beds and their boobs you know that you've got all those pictures of the like the teeth marks right on the swell of the bust like "Mm." which is i have to say one of the things i really like about the original nosferatu Mm -hmm. the movie Mm -hmm. Is like, bro's ugly. He's got like these gnarly ass teeth, yeah, like not fangs, just like fucking teeth, like messed up teeth. I appreciate the the depiction of vampires that doesn't do the fangs, but goes all in on like the messiness of somebody ripping into you. To the monster, yeah, the monster, yeah. yeah. So I, like, Thirty Days of Night's a ridiculous movie, but their vampires are legit, and that's actually the difference of like old school vampire versus mm-hmm. contemporary vampire. So like, and we'll, we'll get the into that. In a bit. Well, it's, yeah. It's also the repression too. You look oh, for at the sure. sexual repression happening. <laughs> like the time I went on a flight and accidentally watched Bram Stoker's Dracula and forgot how many boobs were in it. So many boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Sorry, child sitting next to me and parent. Uh, <laughs> like Gary Oldman's butt. Do we get his butt in that? I don't I can't remember. No, no, we don't. Cause I just saw it Aww. recently. You just have his, the, the brides, lots of boobs with the brides. Oh yeah. The brides were really Lucy, booby. Lucy's booby. Yeah. She super booby well i would know it gets pretty booby there for a while she runs around without a bra uh but it's not direct boob Um, no but you know it's suggested it's suggestive boob suggestive boob hashtags suggestive boob suggestive boob and this all came from rabies (laughs) 
Thank you, rabies, for giving us suggestive boobs. Anywho, um, with disease, many bodies were buried in a shallow grave, <laughs> thus causing um, extended contagion. Because when you don't bury them deep mm. enough, guess what happens? Disease spreads. Disease more. gets spread, especially if like they don't get burned. You yeah. know, like stuff like that ends up causing more Gets disease into the soil sometimes yeah. like yeah and especially in areas that were hit by like a plague lots mm-hmm, of bodies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. lots of disease it's moving around and if you have animals then eating anything from these diseased bodies and now the animals are diseased and, and then people the cycle the, the, the animals mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. they become infected that's a whole thing so that's anywho that's that's one thing but there's also I'm going to skip forward. I know we're talking about Dracula a little bit just for funsies, but uh, (laughs) cholera would have been a direct influence on Bram Stoker while writing Mm -hmm. Dracula. Uh, And there's actually an epidemic of cholera in the 1890s while he was writing it. So Mm. that's a more recent uh, bit of, you know, disease and how it impacted Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. But if we go back to when a lot of this was starting, villagers in Eastern Europe were unearthing the dead thinking it would stop the spread of disease, which is just dumb, if you think about that now, of what we just said. <laughs> and yet the opposite would somehow magically happen. Right? And still people <laughs> were questioning, where is this plague coming from? What was the origin of the deaths? Why are they occurring? Y'all are digging up dead bodies that are sick. You're causing it and you're making it up to be a vampire. But whatever, Shocking. we're going to go with it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's because nobody knew, right? So like, not a lot was known about the sciences of diseases back then. And regular everyday people had no idea about medicine or causes of things like decomposition. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is where it gets fun. Uh, the, t- the typical human corpse, fun fact, goes through a series of changes as it decomposes. I'm sure we all know <gasps> is this, this, right? Is this the puberty of a corpse? Yes, but the opposite. <laughs> um, and- Reverse puberty. <laughs> hashtag reverse puberty <laughs> and rabies. welcome everyone uh, <laughs> when a person has one of these uh just mentioned aforementioned wasting diseases villagers assumed that something was responsible for taking the essence out of this person because they were losing their life right but disease wasn't understood and people thought death was brought by the dead and people only really understood decomposition above ground not below Mm. ground Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so decomposition above ground happens way faster than it does in a grave and people didn't know this at the time and therefore they thought that the dead were still alive when they dug them up or the undead when they were disinterred were still alive and undead and Mm -hmm. the thought was that the life that is showing up in this dead person is from blood that was drawn from its victims. Therefore, it is a vampire. So the corpse would appear to still have growing hair and nails and blood would possibly be streaming from the mouth or nose. And that made people think this is a freaking vampire. So little did they know that this could all be explained by science. Science? So fun fact. There uh, was a show on the History Channel that I watched about vampires and the origin of vampires. And there was this guy. He was an anthropologist named, I mean, he's probably still alive, Paul Barber. And he legit sounds like Colin Robinson from What We Do in the Shadows. Mm, mm, And mm. he explained how this could be caused. So I'm going to play you a recording (laughs) of Colin Robinson talking about Vampires that are not actually vampires. 
in the attempt to kill it, and what they viewed as killing it, they would discover that uh, there were other events taking place that caused them to believe that the corpse was in fact alive in some sense. One of these was the fact that the corpse wasn't in rigor mortis, but we wouldn't expect the corpse to be in rigor mortis because that's a temporary condition. Another is that they discovered that if they cut off its head or drove a stake into it or cut it into pieces, that the corpse would bleed. Uh, again, this is not an unusual event. It's true that blood coagulates at death, but it's also true that it very often uh, becomes liquid again. And the most striking event that they describe is if they killed it in such a way as to put pressure on the corpse, for example, by driving a stake into the chest, the corpse would let out a groan. Well, it's pretty clear that this is, again, not an unusual situation because the corpse is still intact. And if you push down on the chest, what you're doing is forcing air past the glottis and causing a very lifelike groan. But this is something that was extremely frightening to people. Doesn't he sound like Colin Robinson? <laughs> sure. He totally, I was losing it. He's also wearing a sweater vest, so I just really like this guy. Um, but anywho, you heard what he was saying. There's reasoning why all these things were happening. So, mm -hmm. you know, internal decay causes bloating. It forces blood out of the body through orifices. There's groans caused by air trapped in the body. Uh, nails seemed to grow because the skin was pulled back when it was mm -hmm. drying up. And, you know, depending on, you know, time of year, if it was cold, for example, with Mercy Brown in that story, she was like put into an area to keep cold because she, they wouldn't they weren't able to dig up the ground because it was frozen when she died. Therefore, her body did not compose as or decompose as quickly because it was cold. And so they thought that she was a vampire, but really it was just a condition that kept her body more preserved for a longer period of time. Mm. So, you know. Medical science failed to explain these uh, post-mortem anomalies, uh, but folk mm -hmm. tradition had a name <laughs> for the undecayed revenant from the mm -hmm. French verb revenir, which is to come back, and the Slavic term was vampire or umpire. So it was thought that these vampires lurched from their graves, would attack the relatives and friends who then died, which is why people were trying to kill these already dead bodies. <laughs> hmm. So kind of wild go listen to mercy brown if you haven't already that's all about that so during this so-called vampire great vampire epidemic some people call it the great uh the vampire epidemic vampire pandemic some people call it the vampire hysteria you get the point you know what it is yeah. it's from roughly 1725 to 1755 vampire myths for lack of a better term went viral across mm. the <laughs> continent right so <laughs> the culminating point of all these ancient beliefs is that this epidemic, uh, people believe vampires were not, were not just real, but all of a sudden appearing in large numbers for unknown reasons all throughout Eastern Europe. Mm. What a time to be alive <laughs> or undead. Or undead. <laughs> Secrets of nature that were uncovered by science were shrouded by superstition. At this time, witch hunts were still real fresh recently in the air. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Priests, doctors, and government officials all wrote reports on actual vampires. Which, like, this goes back to the idea of resources and sources. Like, where are you getting your information from? And, like I mentioned before, what (laughs) our friend Colin Robinson was talking about was that the medieval cure was to exhume, stake, decapitate, and burn before scattering the ashes and running water. In the Mercy Brown situation, it wasn't just burning the heart, but mixing it with water and given to her sibling to drink, sure. which was supposed to fix the consumption, but definitely didn't and still killed everybody. Um, yeah. But, like, that was drastic. It was very, like, a medieval cure. Like, it was yeah. really dated. And so as the Age of Enlightenment started to happen... People were looking at this solution as kind of like a superstitious bullshit option. So Mm -hmm. Catholic and Protestant bishops were trying to like move things forward and away from witch hunts. And so by the 18th century, parish priests were forbidden to carry out any any of these things. And it was actually Mm. illegal to do this, to desecrate graves. Hmm. Um, But in late 1731... Austro-Hungarian regimental field surgeon, what a mouthful, uh, Johannes Flukinger. Oh, that's a great name. Great name. He journeyed to the Serbian village of Medvegia. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce all these names. <laughs> Around 120 miles from Kisiljevo on the Ottoman sure. border. Mm-hmm. Because he got uh, wind of some really weird series of mysterious deaths. Hmm. So this guy, the lack of a term is vampire zero, which is fun, uh, was an Albanian named Arend Paole or Paole, P-A-O-L-E. I think it's Paole. Uh, when he was alive, Paole claimed he had protected himself from a vampire's bite by eating dirt from its tomb and cleansing himself with its blood. Yummy. Nice, sure. Nice old dirt milkshake. Dirt bath. Um Unfortunately, uh, it didn't prevent him from, I don't know, falling off a wagon and breaking his neck. Uh, And so that's how he died. Forty days after his death, four villagers declared that Pale had actually returned, quote, to torment them. And then those four dudes just died. All four (laughs) of them. Um, The local elders disinterred Pale's corpse and found it, quote, complete and incorrupt while quote completely fresh blood flowed from his eyes ears and nose end quote satisfied (laughs) by the evidence the locals drove a stake through the torso quote whereupon he let out a noticeable groan and bled copiously sounds like what we were just talking about Mm -hmm. in the interest of preventing an endemic and further panic in the village flukinger sought a scientific explanation for the sudden deaths of these villagers And the apparent anomalies in the lack of decomposition. And he couldn't find any evidence. Evidence. Evidence of known diseases. So the folk hypothesis trumped science as the most plausible diagnosis. And he wasn't alone. Uh, He actually had an epidemiologist with him that was sent to investigate the case. Last name was Glaser. Uh, and Glaser's dad was also a physician who wrote in a very reputable weekly medical journal. Mm-hmm. And after all this happened, he published the story of this said vampirism. So here's a quote from the story that he published in this medical journal. Again, the resource is reliable medical journal, right? 
Mm-hmm. All right. Quote, a magical plague has been rampant in Serbia for some time. Perfectly normal buried dead are arising from their undisturbed graves to kill the living. These two, dead and buried in their turn, arise in the same way to kill yet more people. The dead attack people by night while they are asleep and suck blood out of them so that on the third day they all die. No cure has yet been found for this evil. End quote. Mm-hmm. If you read that in a medical journal that was not a superstitious paranormal journal, what would you think? If you're back I in mean, the day, not right now. <laughs> I mean, what would I mean? Like, I read something in a medical journal even today. Like, I assume it's legit. It's a medical journal. Like, that should be, you know, real. Right. And like, something like that would be terrifying to read. Oh, absolutely. Right? So this journal then published 17 articles in 1732 alone just on Mm. vampirism. (laughs) So it wasn't just this one article. There were multiple ones published. And this is where that, like, snowball effect started to happen. (laughs) And I don't know. Reading about, like, the validity of a vampire story in a medical journal is just, like, wild, you know? (laughs) So... Think of the perfect storm, right? You have a bunch of these uneducated people <laughs> that don't know what they're doing. You have a medical journal that's publishing this stuff. Mm-hmm. These people have no idea about decomposition. They only know about diseases where people wither away and sometimes are buried before they were dead just to come back from the dead because that also happened. We'll talk about that in a second. With the superstition of vampires, you get some real juice for mass vampire hysteria. Am I right? <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty juicy. I mean, it makes sense, too, if you think about it, if you put yourself in their shoes, you know? (laughs) So to them, vampires were absolutely real. And the issue wasn't laid to rest until 1746, when French-speaking Vatican scholar and Benedictine monk Dom Augustin Calmet uh, concluded in his dissertations sur les apparitions... (laughs) not how you pronounce it but it's fine uh that scripture aside nobody was rising from the grave (laughs) he classified vampires as creatures of imagination rather than an immediate threat scully's gonna scully however scully this wasn't the first thing he said he actually before this wrote a bunch of stuff on his belief in apparitions of angels demons other spirits and also included dissertations on various topics like magic sorcery witchcraft instances of vampires revenants and individuals returning from the grave so this is kind of conflicting with what he was saying previously so Mm. some sources say that he believed in vampires and other ones call him a scully um Initially, Calme adopted the position that vampires existed as a form of celestial punishment, but by his second edition publication in 1749, he'd come to the conclusion that they were just fantasy. Now, this is what's really interesting, and I heard this from the book that I read that I was talking about. He mixed evidential history, theories of natural philosophy, and disputations into theological truth. Mm-hmm. His investigation is the first sustained analysis of vampires using deductive theological reasoning as opposed to medical analysis. So you have all the medical analyses, people, and now you have a theologian. Mm. And you're hearing mixed stuff from the theologian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's got to confuse people real bad. Oh, absolutely. You know what's even more interesting is the timing. So... 
Calme's conclusion co- coincided with the birth of the cemetery reform movement, especially mm-hmm. in France. I know you're familiar with a lot of this because of like movement of like where people were buried. Specifically sure. in France, though, um, urban planners such as London's Christopher Wren advocated for cemeteries outside of city limits as early as 1706. It's the whole thing of where people were buried in a big city that wanted to be built upon, so you have to move the body somewhere else. Sure, right, yeah. And it's like Seattle. (laughs) We did that here. We Um, did that here more than once. Yep. Uh, But this was in 1765, and then in 1780, the notorious Central Paris Cemetery of the Innocents, which had been quite literally bursting at the seams, was closed, emptied, and all the remains were reburied in the catacombs, which what we now know as the Paris catacombs. Right. This is all around the same time that Colme is now saying... Like, he's trying to keep people out of cemeteries. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, basically, what he's trying to do is if the breakaway dead weren't animated by supernatural forces, then sensible practical measures would be enough to keep corpses confined to their tombs. Mm-hmm. So, that's just a politics, man. <laughs> I just found Kalmea's story to be, like, really, really interesting. Um, yeah. Especially as, like, a really religious dude. Mm-hmm. But... Anywho, then there's the whole preventing vampirism and premature burials. Mm -hmm. (laughs) More fun stuff. Um, Preventative measures were taken to prevent people from coming back after death. Because more than once, people were buried alive multiple times around the same time that vampirism was happening. So imagine you have all these people thinking that there's vampires and digging up dead bodies, but then actually like living people are being buried because people think that they're dead and they get stuck in a coffin, try to dig their way out, make it all bloody and then die. People think that that's someone that comes back from the dead, right? Like that's just the natural thought process. That's literally, uh, I mean, there were a couple of things that happened. You either made sure that the person that you're burying was dead by decapitating them and putting the head behind them or nailing them down so that they don't come back from the dead. Uh, and apparently, <laughs> I didn't know this. Fun fact. Historian Michael Bell said that folklore states that functions of headstones are actually meant to keep people in their graves. <laughs> and if the headstone's leaning forward or if it's destroyed, that means that that person is undead and they came out of their grave. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a little warning. <laughs> has nothing to do with nature or weather or anything no. else. Of course not. God forbid. Um, but, you know, terrified villagers would search cemeteries for vampires, try to kill the source of the illness of their loved ones, as one does. And then, you know what happened? Hmm. Vampire hunters became a thing. And Ooh. these weren't just terrified villagers. These are like educated, esteemed people, doctors, philosophers, with the fundamental belief that vampires existed. And they actually traveled all around Europe looking for real cases of vampirism. Um, obviously, there's also the whole political and religious upheaval that happened at the same time. We're not going to get into it. If you want to read about it, go wild. I'm not going to go there. But uh, more fun facts about premature burials. International panic started in the 19th century regarding premature burials that people created all kinds of contraptions to prevent it. Like the saying, Saved by the Bell. Kim, mm-hmm. do you know where the saying, Saved by the Bell, came from? The little bells on the graves that they had connected so they went into the coven. So if I woke up and realized, oh, no, I'm not dead, I'd pull on the little bell and it would Uh go ring, 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 and you'd be saved by the bell. Doesn't that change your whole perspective on 90s television? No, I knew that in the 90s. (laughs) Okay, for everybody else that didn't, there you go. (laughs) 
<laughs> I had a book that was like this very scary almanac that was geared towards kids. There was a bunch of this like weird shit like this. It had the thing about the seeds in it too. Nice. And uh, and so I knew a lot of this stuff when I was a wee young thing. This is why we were friends. For everyone else that didn't know this, <laughs> there you go. Um, there you go. But also, it's just like. I love that they were solution oriented. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, there were hundreds of cases of people that were buried prematurely. A lot of people were buried while they were in a coma. Uh, a woman named Constance Whitney was buried while she was in a coma um, and got dug back up. Um, but anywho, at the same time, around this time in 1721, vampire and the term vampire became official in German. And by 1732, 14 books on vampirism had been published in Germany alone. In 1734, the word vampire officially entered the English language, according to the Oxford Dictionary. And in 1737, French got one, too. So people would still debate whether vampires were real or not. We have a friend. His name is Voltaire. Mm -hmm. Voltaire spoke out against vampires existing. (laughs) You know, we have Scully now. We had Scully back then. Uh, Skeptics of the 18th century discredited the vampire. You had your medical people that wrote other medical things that were not what these medical people wrote, right? Mm -hmm. And by debunking the vampire, if I can say it, by debunking the vampire, it made them more appealing to the imagination. And what's also happening at the same time is gothic literature, Mm -hmm. right? And you have all of these people writing about all these dark things um you also have at the same time an event that happened in 1819 with our friend mary shelley Mm -hmm. and percy shelley and john polidori Mm -hmm. and lord byron they all hung out on this dark stormy night in the summer when they didn't have any sun we talked about it on the mary shelley episode where i talked Mm -hmm. about frankenstein if you want to listen to it go listen to it um i love all the like plugs that we have for our own episodes in this so just like get more downloads guys um but at the same exact event the first modern fiction publication was written called the vampire by english writer john polidori um and in 1845 Varney the Vampire was published in A Penny Dreadful, and it was a great example of early popular vampirism. And this is when you started to see the evolution of the story of a vampire come to life in a way that we talked about earlier. Where Carmilla, too. Yes. There's a bunch. I'm not going to get into all of them. It would take me forever. Truly, like, <laughs> I'm giving you the Cliff's Notes version right now. Um, if you want to learn more about it, Go wild. You have infinite resources. I'll give you I some. I liked Carmilla because it's a female. Yes. And they're lesbians. That's always a good time. Lesbian um, vampires. Well, that was another thing, too. And there's a whole section in the book that talks about the association of sexualizing vampires and female vampires and how, mm-hmm. like, women were more inherently vampiric because they menstruated. So, like, <laughs> that's a whole other thing uh, I wasn't planning on getting into. If you want to read about that. Go read The Vampire in New History. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, moral of the story is even Edgar Allan Poe wrote about vampires. He also, in uh, Follow the House of Usher, he talked about <laughs> premature burial. Like, all these things that we're talking about were written about in fiction at the same time. 
And then you also have the lore of vampires that travel to America and New England in the late 18th century. That's where you get like uh, the Mercy Brown story that came about. And this was also exactly when Bram Stoker wrote Dracula in 1897. And much of that is what we have as our vampire lore today actually stems from Dracula, which is such a cool thing, but also something a lot of people don't know. And as mentioned earlier, Dracula gave us a lot of the following attributes. Immortality, having the strength of 20 men, uh, the fact that a vampire can shapeshift and take the form of a dog, bat, wolf, what have you, no reflection, uh, can appear as a mist. That's fun. Um, Mm. Repelled by holy uh, water and crosses, don't have a shadow, and they must sleep in dirt from their native land. Also, that they can't uh, come into someone's home unless they're invited in. Like, this is all from Dracula. And the evolution of Gothic literature into the influence of pop culture and film has brought us some of the most incredible works. Like I said, we're not going to really go into that because we're already an hour and 15 into this. Um, But some of my personal favorites, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the film... I love Keanu Reeves' shitty English accent. Um, and also just like, it's it's just so good. I could watch that movie over and over and over and over again. It's just such a great film. Also, Interview with the Vampire, What We Do in the Shadows, a personal fave, as you know, if you've listened to us before, I really love that show and movie. Um, but most depictions aren't as traditionally frightful as the legend of the vampire intended, as we talked about, as you mentioned before, Kim, with the teeth. Um Usually has a lot of eroticism implied. Hello, true blood. Um, Mm -hmm. And vampires still have a death grip on us today. You'll occasionally hear about some real life vampire instances in lore, depending on your perspective. Um, Like the story of the Carter brothers in New Orleans. Um, In 1932, John and Wayne Carter lived in a house in the French Quarter. Have you heard the story before, Kim? The Carter brothers? Uh, Yes. Um, I'm not remembering a lot of details, but it's ringing a bell. It's a recent one, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Like Mm -hmm. we talked about the Ursuline convent, which again is around the same time as all this stuff that we've talked about, but this is 1932. This is Mm -hmm. like a hundred years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So John and Wayne Carter were brothers. They lived in a house in the French Quarter and allegedly, allegedly, they Mm -hmm. kidnapped people, Mm -hmm. tied them to chairs in their house, slit their wrists and drank their blood out of fancy cups. Um, they wouldn't completely drain their victims all at once. They would kind of wrap them up, leave before sunrise and return after dark and reopen the wounds of their sad victims and continue to drink their blood. Um, no one knew that any of this was happening until one of their victims escaped. She was a young girl and escaped during the day while they were gone. So she runs down to Royal Street finds a police officer, tells him what happens, shows him her wrists. He's like, "Eh, I don't know. This sounds kind of wild. I don't know if I believe this girl. But he ends up going to the house and bringing some officers with him just to check it out. Now, they're super shocked when they get there. They find four other victims, half dead and tied to chairs with their wrists fully bloodied and bandaged. And then they find two dead victims that were wrapped up in blankets. Mm. The brothers were then arrested. And when they were arrested, they were begged to be put to death because they believed that they were vampires and could no longer control themselves and they were never going to stop because they just they couldn't help themselves. So they were tried, convicted and executed. Now, legend claims that when the vault where their bodies 
uh, were placed was opened a year and a day later, which is a tradition in New Orleans, is to visit the grave a year and a day later. Um, nobody was in there. It was empty. Dun, dun, dun. But the best part of the story, Kim, are you ready for it? Sure. There's no documentation about any of this. Well, there Literally you go. anywhere. If it happened in 1932, there would be, say it with me, records. 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 You could look it up. You could find it. You could research, I don't know, police records, documentation, things that people keep track of when there's murders. Mm, mm. Right? And, and there's yeah. nothing of the sort. But it's a fun story. It's and, a great story. And also, I'm going to give Rose a plug. If you're in New Orleans and you go on a vampire tour with Rose Sinister, my friend, I'm just going to keep plugging Rose. Um, She'll tell you all about the Carter brothers, and she'll also tell you that some people claim to see them standing on the second floor balcony of the home where they used to live to this day, dressed really nice and thin. Um, She'll also tell you about the Casket Girls, which we talked about in another episode. So go listen to that episode. Rose is on it. It's actually not a great episode. It's like the second one we ever did. Don't don't tell people to listen to that one. (laughs) That's one of the ones I want to take off and put on our Patreon. At some point, if it's still up, you can try to listen to it, but it's really, like, wild. Uh, We had just started the podcast at that point, and we were in a very different place now than we were then. Anywho, um, while there aren't any records of the Carter brothers, it is a fun story, as are most vampire tales. Am I right? So... Even if it's modern, there's still some life to breathe in to vampire lore. Quote, vampires are manifestations of metaphobia. They personify the fear of moving beyond what is familiar into the afterwards or the beyond, as well as incarnating the fear of the unknown. End quote. So are they real? Is it a real thing? Do we know why they came about? I hope you do now. Now that I just did all this research for you, you're welcome. Um, but we'll leave it up to you to decide. Uh, personally, I believe in Colin Robinson. He is an energy vampire. I do believe that energy vampires fully exist. Kim, what do you think? <laughs> what do you believe? <laughs> energy vampires, sure, yeah. I've never been a vampire's a real person, ever, even when I was younger. Um, yeah, that's not a, that's not when I feel like I have to even scully very hard to be like, <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know a whole lot of people who actually think vampires are real. I mean, like I children. Mean, that's true. But also, I always find it really um, interesting when you have people that, like, live and act like vampires that are human. Right. But there's also people who live and act like furries. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, that doesn't... It, <laughs> they don't it, drink blood. <laughs> but play acting is a very different thing yeah. um, than something actually existing. I mean, like, yeah, sure. You know, the goths at my school when I was in high school would joke about it. You know, oh, yeah, we go behind the bleachers and drink blood. But, like, they're not really doing that. Or maybe they were. But it was still, (laughs) that doesn't make you a vampire. That just makes you a a goth who is drinking blood. Also just makes you cool. (laughs) Does it? (laughs) Does it make you cool? Question mark. As I am sitting here with my Buffy shirt on. Just for this episode, I was also Love wearing it. a Dracula sweatshirt earlier in the spirit of the vampire. Um, <laughs> but I hope you, y'all enjoyed this one. Um, really heavy on the information. Sorry if that was a lot. That's actually not even close to everything. So if you want to <laughs> learn more about it, read that book, The Vampire, A New History. 
And we'll list the show notes, um, all the resources for that one. But happy spooky season. Um, go watch a vampire movie and celebrate vampires. And if you're in New Orleans, go take a vampire tour. It's fun. Um, and having said that, this brings us to... Kim, what you watching? Uh, a lot of bad horror films. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I've watched a couple good ones. Uh, so I recently watched The Wrath of Becky. <laughs> what a title. This is a sequel to a movie called Becky about a girl named Becky who um, it's kind of like Home Alone if Home Alone was like supremely fucked up. <laughs> more, more, more fucked up. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's the second part. It kind of dials everything up to 11. It's it's Becky from the first film. I don't want to give. It's kind of hard if you're going into The Wrath of Becky. Um, like, you can watch it standalone. It um, kind of recaps the important details from the previous film. But she's this now precocious, like, 15-year-old girl uh, who gets into very violent trouble <laughs> and shenanigans. It's It's like... John Wick, if John oh, Wick geez. was about a teenage girl. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it's honestly, it 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 went there unapologetically. I feel like if you're going to do it, you got to do it unapologetically, though, you know? Yeah, that was part of what I really liked, is that it just kind of um, leaned into everything in a way that, uh, I don't know, I was worried it was just going to be kind of treading on the first film and it wasn't um but it it is not subtle but it was a blast i thought it was absolutely a blast i might have even liked it more than the first one nice that doesn't Um, happen often no um and again i think it's because they kind of tried to to keep it they didn't try (laughs) they didn't try to be subtle or realistic or anything uh and then i also saw it lives inside Ooh. Which is a supernatural horror film. Um, I watched this in theaters, but I think it's probably going to be streaming pretty soon if it's not already available to at least rent. And um, it's the story of uh, a high school girl named Sam. And um, she's Indian. Her her family is Indian. Uh, and you see her from the get-go kind of a little of the struggle of the like, you know, her mom who's very traditional and, and wanting her to remember her heritage and um, how she's trying to really be an American teenager. Hmm. And there's another student, um, Tamara, who was her friends, but they, especially since she kind of started to try to fit in more with the cool crowd uh, have they haven't really been friends and she's been carrying around this glass jar and 
acting really strange and then one day is asking Sam for help saying that she's got some kind of like supernatural creature in this jar and she can't control it and she needs her help. Oh dang. And it's I mean it's it's in terms of like story beats it's not necessarily anything you haven't seen before. Sure. But you know it's a, a teenage ghost film. But the mixing in of um, you know some of the Indian culture and and the the demon, uh, who is is um in Hin- it's a Hindu, uh, demon, um, was really cool and and just made for kind of a a, a something different in storytelling. Um, I really enjoyed. It. I thought the performances were really good across the board, and I really I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really solid. So it's. Not necessarily one you need to like rush out and see in theaters, but it is absolutely worth the watch when it's streaming. And it was the debut film, uh, I believe, or the debut feature of um, the filmmaker. So I'm also just kind of curious to see what else he's got in him. Oh, that's cool. That'll Mm -hmm. be fun to watch the next thing that he puts out. Yeah. Nice. That sounds awesome. I'd watch that. What you been watching? Um, I've been reading a lot of you, as you know. <laughs> so again, I'll say the book names. If you want to read them, listeners, feel free. Kim, I know you own it already. Uh, the Vampire, A New History by Nick Groom and Vampire Forensics, Uncovering the Origins of an Enduring Legend by Mark Collins, the National Geographic book. Um, more reading than watching for me recently, just because I also started school. I went back to school for the first time in 15 years, guys. It's pretty wild. Um, and I'm learning about psychology for forensic psychology, which is really exciting. So I'm reading that psychology book and these two books, so technically three books. But um, I also had a double feature night with Terrence last weekend. I think I told you about it already, but we didn't really get into it because I was like, no, we need to talk about it at Creepy Critics Corner. So here we are, um, where we had not seen Dr. Sleep yet. And mm-hmm. I know you saw it a long time mm-hmm. ago when it first came out. And I've been just like me Because I creepy critiqued it. it when it first came out. Yeah. Yeah. Like a while ago, like when it yeah. came out. And I still hadn't seen it. And neither had Terrence. And Honestly, it's been forever since we watched The Shining. So we realized, you know what? We should watch The Shining first and then watch Dr. Sleep immediately afterward, um, which is a commitment. But we did it. Um, and it was really actually cool to see the parallels and the like references to The Shining within Dr. Sleep. I know you really liked Dr. Sleep. I loved it. I, I liked it, it a lot. There were certain parts that I thought were a little overwrought and like... Mm not necessary and they could have got their point across without doing it but i loved how creative it was Mm -hmm. um and honestly like sad some of it's really sad oh yeah very Um, much so i mean i know the shining is kind of sad to a degree but i feel like this one has just a lot more emotion in it um well part of that too are we talking about the shining the movie or the shining the book the movie movie we're talking about movies the movie is very sterile Right. That's why I was Cooper's saying it's not very sterile. Yeah. But I feel like Dr. Sleep is closer to the book, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I haven't yeah. read the book. I just know that you told me that. So that's why I'm saying that. Because mm-hmm. I haven't read the book. I need to read the book. Now I want to. It's a great um, book. Yeah. 
but <laughs> I'll put it on my book list of the more books for me to read. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed watching <clears throat> something actually spooky and creepy for Creepy Critics Corner. Um, and outside of that, I haven't been watching much, to be honest. Um, but next time we talk, I promise I'll have more things for you. Mm. Um, but having said that, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you enjoy what we do, head on over to Apple podcasts or Spotify, give us a rating or review. And if you want to contribute financially and help us out to make more awesome content for you, head on over to Patreon and you get more content there too. Um, look us up on anywhere, literally ghoulish tendencies, podcasts, socials, where have you. Um, and we always appreciate a hello. So come on by, say hi. And, uh, Enjoy a spooky season, guys. We're in it. It's October. Yes. It's October. Anywho, thank you so much for listening and stay. stay.